The basics of a relationship, cho uh, choosing to serve. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, choosing to serve. We've, we're honoring those who have chosen to serve our country uh, over, over the many, many years, 200 plus years, as Fred was saying, uh, that we have had the freedom to, to worship. We've had the freedoms that have honestly never been experienced by any other nation throughout history, the freedom to, to choose to be in church, the freedom to choose to, to worship the Lord in so many ways. It's a time when we celebrate our freedom and our independence. And usually what that means is the food and the fireworks and the fun. There's another F today, though, in America. It's called foreboding. There's a foreboding about what's happening in our nation. Uh, Erwin Lutzer wrote a book, uh, what, Why the Cross Can Do What P Politics Can't. And he, I think, really points it out better than I can say it and, and better than anybody that I have heard. And, and listen to what he says, just as kind of the introduction, Erwin uh, Lutzer, Why the Cross Can Do What Politics Can't. The prediction was both astonishing and accurate. In 1834, get this, 1834, 100 years before Adolf Hitler, a poet named Heinrich Hein assessed the mood in Germany and concluded that, the, that only the cross of Christ was holding back the Germans, what he called their lust for war. The prediction was even more remarkable because Hein was a Jew, a man who ne nevertheless believed that only Christianity could tame what he called the brutal German joy in battle. Now, I'm from German descent, so I'm saying th something about Germans, but I'm talking about me. That's my relatives I'm talking about. But listen, what if it's true that we could say about America, as Heinrich Heinz said about Germany, that only the cross of Christ is keeping America from forces of brutality, which, if unleashed, could cause the whole world to be astonished? Do we not already see such forces at work with the escalation of crime, the moral collapse in our schools, the destruction of our families? Today, it's tempting to wrap the cross of Christ in the flag, to equate the American dream with God's dream for this nation. We have attached a myriad of agendas to the cross of Christ, often clouding the one message that the world needs to hear with clarity and with power. And God has done this, he says, in a way that never before has been seen. He goes on, we're tempted to think that our times are unique, but the fact is that the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and their followers had all, the national, all our national woes times ten. Think about this, in the time of Christ, in the time of Peter, they had all of the woes times ten, and yet without any political base, without a voting block in the Roman Senate, and without as much as one sympathetic Roman emperor, they changed their world, turning it upside down, as Luke put it. He concludes, to put it clearly, for some Christians, lower taxes, a strong national defense, a rollback of government regulations, and a balanced budget amendment are more pressing issues than whether their neighbors and friends will spend eternity with God or be lost forever. Did you get that? We get more passionate about the lower taxes, strong national defense, a rollback of government regulations, and a balanced budget amendment. I think those are all wonderful things, but we're more passionate about that than we are about our neighbors that are going to hell. He says, our creature comforts are the issues that really stir us up, not our call to be servants like Jesus Christ. Wow. 
That's powerful. And as we're, we're talking today about choosing to serve, we need to understand that. We've been given the one answer that the world needs, and it's not a different politician. It's not a different government. It's not, you know what, I'm looking forward to the day that I don't live in a democracy. You know why? There will be no more elections. Praise God. You know that day's coming? I'm not looking forward to a democracy. And when we get to heaven, you don't get to vote on where you get to live. And just because some of you guys don't like maybe some other churches, you're going to be sandwiched in between maybe an Episcopal and a, and a Pentecostal. That's where you're going to be. And you're going to have to look across the street at somebody you, li- you don't like. And the Lord says, don't you get it? The message is not about politics and it's not about democracy. I'm looking forward to a theocracy where Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and there will be no more elections. It's the only answer with lasting hope. When I was growing up, my dad was a pastor and I was growing up in a church and my dad over and over again would tell us his life verse. He would tell it from the pulpit. He would tell us to it, tell it to us uh, when we were sitting at the home, uh, anytime he got a chance, he told us our life verse. This is what my dad's life verse was from Second Corinthians. It says, "So then, men, or excuse me, First Corinthians four one and two. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the secret things. That one thing that everybody needs, the cross, the secret things of God. They've that's been entrusted to us. They ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Listen, folks, we do not serve to get to heaven. We do not act and work for our salvation. We serve out of gratitude for the Lord who loved us so much that he came and gave and served and loved and died. Out of gratitude by pointing others to Jesus Christ. Out of gratitude by serving one another. That's what we do. I still love, if, if you're going to, to boil all of, of what we're supposed to be doing as far as pointing people to Jesus Christ, I still think Paul Little did the best description of evangelism you can possibly have. Paul Little was a, a man who loved to share his faith. And this is how he defined evangelism. Paul Little says, our job, pointing people to Jesus Christ, our job is to do this. We are one beggar telling another beggar where he can find food. We have found Jesus Christ, and we're pointing other people to him. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter understands this whole thing, and and he understands service from a different perspective than you or I could possibly understand it. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to look at two things. The first one is this, serving Christ transforms me. Serving Christ transforms me. And by the way, my wife was gone. If the PowerPoint is wrong, it's my fault. If it's right, then she set it up right. But if it's wrong, I messed it up. So I'm just giving Jay a heads up on that. We appreciate Jay and, and the work that he does. I also appreciate Stacy playing the piano. I, I appreciate her so much uh, stepping in. We, we appreciate all the help that we get around here. That's good, yeah. First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Serving Christ transforms me. Verse 1, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. By the way, that's a military term, arm yourself. That's, that's good on a patriotic weekend. Therefore, since Christ suffered in, this, in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. 
For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Peter is speaking here, and he says, listen, do you understand what service is all about? Jesus Christ set the example. And as we begin to serve God, as we begin to serve Christ, then we understand that example better. And he says, serving Christ begins with a new attitude. Serving Christ begins with a brand new attitude. Do you have a new attitude? Did Jesus suffer on our behalf? Absolutely. And anyone that's ever seen the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, understands just a, a, a glimpse of that. But it was much more. The one who spoke all of creation into being, the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, came humbly to us, and he served and he suffered for us. And the suffering that is depicted here in Jesus' time it's a, it's a one-time process. It's not something that's ongoing even today. It's, it's a one-time event, the life of Christ culminating in the cross. It's just like 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus Christ suffered on our behalf, and in so doing, he served us in a way that we can't imagine. And he had a definite purpose to bring us to God. And then, so, because of that, therefore, since he did all of this, and, and the therefore is a summary sa- statement of everything that's happened in First Peter up to now, because Christ died for us and brought us near to God, we have something we're supposed to do. We're to arm ourselves, literally, from the military. A battle is raging. Grab a weapon. Now, I've not been in the military, so I don't know that. I have been in the midst of grandkids who have super soakers. And about this time of year, you really understand that. If you're around a pool and you're unarmed and they have the super soakers, there was only one thing for me to do. It's called a hose. You grab that hose, you can get a lot more water out of that hose than they can possibly get in a super soaker. In a short period of time, they may douse you, but in the long, long term, you do win when you have the hose. And you arm yourself. And he says, what are you supposed to arm yourself with? Well, it's an attitude. It's a radical attitude, a willingness to live differently, to live for what Christ wants, not what we used to live for. What did we used to live for? It's really not a a concept that's unique to Peter. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Each one of you, or each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ. And you won't see it up here, but in verse 7 it goes on to say, taking the nature of a servant, Christ, taking the nature of a servant, he was made in human likeness, and he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Lord says, I want you to have my attitude. I want you to have a change of attitude. And serving often often includes suffering. When you serve someone, you you will often suffer. And today's suffering is not a big deal. I mean, we don't like to talk about that. How many of you want to sign up for a Suffering 101? You want to get into that class? No, we don't do that. We say, well, we don't like to suffer. We don't want to suffer. I don't believe that for a minute. I absolutely do not believe that. I've been to a couple of weddings over the last few months. 
I've watched women walk in in shoes that were beautiful shoes. But guess what happens by the reception time? The shoes are all on the floor, and they're walking around barefoot. Why? Because they have suffered to look good for just a little while, but as soon as, and you say, well, yeah, that's that kind of suffering. There's no other kind of suffering. Okay, let's talk about babies being born. Some of them with one push and some of them with 28 hours of labor, but there's a lot of suffering going on. There's morning sickness, there's swollen feet, there's swollen legs, there's swollen everything. They, they don't look good anymore. They're unhappy about this, they're unhappy about that, and that's just till the baby gets there. Then the suffering really begins. We suffer for what we want. The Lord says, I want to transform your attitude. I want you to go into this not saying, well, whatever you do, Lord, I don't want to suffer. Whatever you do, Lord, I don't want to have any hard time. The Lord says, I want you to have this attitude. Just say whatever you want, Lord. Whatever you want, I will serve you. As for me and my house, we will serve you. As for me and my house, we will spend our life on you today. That's a song. It's not just words. It's, it's, it's a commitment. It's a promise. It's an attitude. Will you serve the Lord? Serving Christ transforms me, and, and you can come to the Lord and say, Lord, change my attitude. Transform my attitude. Here's the second part. Serving Christ brings a new lifestyle. Not just a new attitude, but it changes the actual living part. Verse 2 says, as a result, changed attitudes result in changed behavior. Changed attitudes result in a changed behavior, right? Have you ever noticed that? Does it ever change your, well, let me give you an example of that. Have you ever been out to a restaurant, you go to a restaurant with someone, and when you get to the restaurant, you find out that they're on a new diet, and the ordering process becomes fun at that point, doesn't it? They say, well, I would like this. Can you, can you bring this out with the gravy on the side? Yeah, I want the meatloaf. Can you make it with tur- ground turkey instead of ground beef? Okay, you can. Well, just put the gravy on the side. And can you give me some mashed potatoes with no calories? Okay, well, then I'll, I'll bypass the mashed potatoes. I'd like a salad. Can you put the dressing on the side and leave the cheese and, the, and all of the good stuff over here, and I'll just eat like a rabbit for a while? Their attitude has changed the way they live, the way they order. Oh, that was me ordering. I, I hate that when I have this. But it changes the way we live. And, and that's what Peter says. He gives us a brutally graphic description of the old life. Chuck Swindoll says about this description, the debauchery listed in 1 Peter includes actions that disgust and shock decency. That's pretty hard to do today, isn't it? It's pretty hard to, to, to disgust and shock decency. I'm not sure that we know what decency even is today. And you say, well, that list doesn't apply to me, Pastor. Listen, to uh, they, they used to live in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies and carousing and detestable idolatry. That doesn't apply to me. That word lust there is not just sexual lust. It's actually the strongest word for passion. It's what you're most passionate about. If there's something other than Christ you're passionate about, then you're living in lust. It literally is used in the New Testament to apply to greed, to hatred, to revenge, even to coveting. You are lusting after someone else's whatever it is. I love to ride bicycles. It's no secret you know that. I get this magazine called Bicycle. I know that's just crazy. You know, what a title. And they had in there, you can own a Tour de France bicycle. You too can own one. Now at affordable prices, nine to $10,000 for a stripped-down bicycle with no motor. You can have one of those. 
And by the side it says, it's not polite to drool. Made me so mad, I wiped my, the page off. And you say, that's crazy. Because you don't like bicycles. It's something else for you. It may be a couch. It may be a home. It may be a boat. It may be a, uh, maybe a career. Maybe sports. Maybe obsessive concern over body image. We lust. There are idols. Tim Keller wrote a book, Counterfeit Gods, about the idols in our life. And this is what he says. A culture of greed led to the economic meltdown in 2008 and 2009. My biggest worry is that we've not learned from that experience. A culture of greed. Idols. And it says in Colossians 3.5 that greed is idolatry. And what do we call to? 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul again writes and he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And Peter says, as he's writing, he says, Don't you get it? If your attitude's been changed, it ought to translate into the way you live, the way you act, the way you are, what you do on a day-to-day basis. And Peter says, Listen, others are going to think you are strange. When you don't plunge in, I love that. This, this time of year, whenever I hear the word plunge, I think of a pool. Whenever I hear plunge, you remember the Nest Tea com- commercials where the guy would just fall backwards, he had iced tea and fall back in this cold water? I've been doing some painting on the outside of the house. Believe me, I did a little of the plunging. Uh, every now and then I'd get really hot and I would just go jump in the pool and then get out. Wouldn't even dry off, just go back to painting. That was perfect, to be soaking wet. You plunge into something. He says, they're going to think you're strange because you won't plunge into this lifestyle that they have. Folks, we ought to be different, not just because we're weird. We ought to be different because we have different passions, different desires, different attitudes, different lifestyle. They think we're strange. That's okay. I think they're strange to call it happy hour because the happy hour leads to hangover and to broken marriages and to all kinds of grief in their life. He says, you've spent enough time. There's a flood of dissipation. You're going, to, you're going to be dissipated by this. He says, don't do this anymore. Serving Christ transforms me. First, my attitude, and then it, it transforms the, the actions that come from that. Not, again, to earn my salvation, but because I'm now joined with Christ, I won't drag him into this stuff. It transforms me. Serving Christ, or serving others, matures me. The second part of the chapter is talking about not only serving Christ, but serving others. When Jesus came and he washed their feet, you remember in the upper room he washed their feet, and when he did that, he said, go and do this for others. I don't think he literally meant to wash their feet. He meant to serve them. And Peter must have been remembering that when he wrote this last part of the chapter, serving others matures me. Look at 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 19. The end of all things is near. The end is near, he says. I love that. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Some of you may may have the word sober in there. That's all right. It's clear-minded, self-controlled so you can pray. Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Ooh, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and, uh, and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even a meddler. I love that little word meddler. We would call it a busybody, wanting to know everybody else's business. Okay, meddler, verse 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Three things that he tells us under this concept of serving, serving others. How can I do that? Okay, pastor, I know I'm supposed to serve others, but I don't want to serve other people. I don't, I don't like serving people. I like to be served, right? Don't you love it when somebody serves you? I think that's an awesome thing. As, as someone whose wife has been gone for a week, a little service is a good thing. You, you miss having somebody else around that will just say, oh, you look tired. Can I get you some iced tea? Oh, look, you look tired. Can I get you a bowl of ice cream with some fresh cut strawberries and whipped cream? And Not that she's ever done that, but, but it, it would be nice. You look tired. Can I make you a steak and baked potatoes? I, you know... You can go to Outback. You, you know, there's just, you just have a hard time. A little service is a wonderful thing. How can I do that? And here's three ways you do it. Number one, love deeply. When we hear the words, the, the end is near, we think of this long-haired, I think of this long-haired guy, and he's got sandals, and he's got a sandwich board, the end is near. You know, the world is ending, the sky is falling, and he's going around, the end is near. You remember the, 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 all the cartoons and all? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that our world is ramping up. Our world is ramping away from God, and it has been in this process for 2,000 years. And as it's ramping away from God, it's like this hurricane is, is stirring. My brother lives in Naples, Florida. Naples has never been hit directly by a hurricane, but it's been gla had glancing blows. And he'd lived there for about 20 years before the first time they got hit badly, just a glancing blow. And I called my brother. I said, Jim, I see a hurricane's headed your way. You want to talk about it? And he says, no, I'm busy. Now, you have to understand, my brother Jim is the least mechanical-minded person alive. He doesn't know what a screwdriver is. And so he was trying to batten down the hatches. He was trying to put plywood on the outside of his house, and he was doing these other things. And he said this, I'll never forget it. When a hurricane's coming, you don't sit around and chit-chat. A hurricane's coming. And the time is short, and the end is near. And it ought to heighten our ability to love. My wife, uh, I was talking to Kathy last night. Her sister Mary is, the doctors are amazed. They, they thought that Mary would die within 48 hours. She has stabilized somewhat. They're going to send her home to hospice. She has cancer of the, of the liver and the, the lungs and the brain and the bone. And I mean, she's in terrible shape. Did not even know she had cancer 10 days ago. And she's dying. She's 68 and she's dying. 
And Kathy said this to me on the phone last night, when you realize you're going to lose one of your loved ones, the time that you have to spend with them becomes more precious. The truth is we're all going to lose loved ones. The end is near. We need to love deeper. We need, we need to find out. It's not the hysteria of those who insist on setting a date for Christ to return. Remember this guy that said in May that the Lord was going to come back and people were selling their homes and cashing in their retirement and they, they were going to go sit on this hill? Somebody from the, not from this church, I, I saw somebody out and they know who I am because I've, I've spoken at their church and they came up to me this week. I was in Target and I was picking up something and they said, aren't you the pastor at Crosspoint? And I said, yeah. And they said, did you get involved in the setting the date thing? And I said, no, I didn't get involved in that. They said, well, how did you know he was wrong? And I said, well, the number one clue was he set a date. And they said, what? And, and I told them a couple of scriptures. Matthew 24, 36 says, no one knows the day or the hour. That's pretty clear. If you set the date, you don't know the day and the hour, so your date's wrong. Luke 12, 40, Jesus says, he will come when you do not expect him. When you least expect the Lord to come, that's when he's going to come. But knowing he is coming anytime should motivate us to love differently. And deeply can mean constant. It can mean that there's this, there's this constant current. Deeply can, can mean like when you plug something in and there's this constant current. And, and it's always there. And you may think that it's, it, it's disrupted, but it's always there. If you ever play with electricity, eventually you will find that you might, might have thought you cut it off. But sometimes electricity is still running. It's this constant. But deeply can also mean that you're stretched to the max. That, that you're pushed and you're prodded and you're stretched and you're giving your all to that. I watched on uh, ESPN, they were showing some of the, the different uh, track events. They, they're, they're getting ready, I guess, for their world event. I don't know which event it was, but I just caught this. And this woman so desperately wanted to win. She had to come in uh, first in that particular heat to go to the next heat to go to the finals because of the other times she knew that she had to win the heat. And when she got to the end, she was about three feet away, and she launched herself. She just threw her arms out, and she just launched herself over that, leaving her feet, and literally leapt ahead of the other person and won by leaping over the finish line. I didn't know you could do that. Boy, she had one bad case of, of road rash when she got up. It was horrible. But she got to the final. She didn't get to make it to the team. But, but that's what she wanted to do. That's deeply. That's wanting something so deeply, loving so deeply, giving your all. Ephesians 6, 7 says this way, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. If Jesus Christ were to show up today and he were to come into the auditorium and, and he were to sit down and you realize that he looked dry and thirsty, would you get him a cup of water? If Jesus Christ came in today and he'd been out in this heat and he'd walked 40 miles and you saw that the heat was just radiating up from the, the pavement and you saw that he had sandals on or maybe he was even barefoot and you thought, oh, those poor feet, they must be. And you would say, can I get you something, maybe a cold towel for your feet? If Jesus Christ came in today and you found out that, that he'd had another 40-day temptation and he'd not had any food for 40 days, would you do something to help him out? You say, well, I've never seen Jesus like that. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. The people in our community that don't have water, and they don't have food, and they don't have shelter, they don't have transportation, 
And you say, well, Pastor, a lot of those guys, when you come out of those stores, a lot of those guys are, you know, that's not the real deal. And I understand that, but there are people who are really suffering. And the Lord says, bring me a cup of water, bring them a cup of water, and you've brought it to me. Serve wholeheartedly as if you're serving the Lord. Jesus tied love and service together. John 15, 12, and 13 says, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. 1 John 3, 16, John writes, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Love deeply. I was out, and I was painting on the house, and one of the neighbors across the street wasn't talking to me. He was talking to the next-door neighbor. He didn't see me because I was hidden by a tree. And he comes up and says, Bob. And, I, and he says, yeah, what? And he says, where you been for the last two weeks? And, and Bob said to this guy, and, and, the, and the neighbor said back to him, I've been down in San Diego. I had the most amazing two weeks in my life. And my neighbor said to him, what was going on in San Diego that was so wonderful? He says, I have a grandchild. I'm Papa. And I'm thinking, I'm Papa too. I came down, we had a little pawpaw reunion, and he was showing me pictures, and I got my iPhone out, and I was showing pictures, because that's the only thing I have right now, and I was showing pictures on the iPhone, and I was, and we were pawpawing back and forth, and he says, man, when I had my kids, they put them in my arms, I thought, man, what in the world have I done? How in the world are we going to raise this kid? He said, I was terrified, but when I saw my grandson, oh, oh, he thought, he said, I... I immediately thought I would kill for this child. I would do anything to protect this child. He said there was an immediate bond in just a second. He says, we're already talking about maybe we should move down to San Diego. Love deeply. Number two, love graciously. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's not what you think it is. It's not that it covers it over. Love graciously. It's not that it covers it, not that it, that it just overlooks sin. That's not at all what it is. Literally, I think the Greek is, is telling us not to broadcast other people's sins, not to stir up a hornet's nest, not to let other people know when you know there's sin in someone else's life. We do not love others if we delight in finding or exposing their faults. Peter understood this in Matthew. Look at what it says in Matthew. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter's going, hey, Lord, I see some of those guys out there, and they don't have it together like me. You know, I've got it down. I, I will forgive them maybe seven times. What do you think, Lord? Man, aren't I? A, I'm, I'm a Christian stud. I'm, I'm awesome. And what does the Lord say? Peter. And we don't know if he said 77 or 490, 70 times 7 or 70 plus 7. doesn't matter. You can't keep track that high anyway. What, is it, what does the Lord say to him? Peter, it's not that. To love graciously means to have this spirit of forgiveness. To love so much that, that you don't want everybody else to know the bad things about someone else. To love graciously means to offer hospitality without grumbling, without grumbling. I love the dinners for eight. We had our dinners for eight the last week just before Kathy went up to South Dakota to, to be with her family. We had the best time. It wasn't, the food was fantastic. 
I, I mean, I, I thought it was interesting. They call it a dinner's for eight, but Carol made enough food for about 28. So we weren't sure what was going on. We saw these platters of food and spilling down. We thought, there's no way. But we ate through a whole lot of that food, a whole lot more than eight people or six people or eight people should eat. And we had a great time. We laughed. We played a game. We had, we had a, an incredible time. Offer hospitality without grumbling. I've been humbled a couple of times. One time in Moscow, when I went into some people's home, they were so poor, they had nothing. They had one egg, and in talking to the husband, he was blind, and he was sitting there, and she was preparing the egg for us. Uh, she was getting it out, and she said, how would you like your egg cooked? We will have one, and you will share it. And I said to the husband, when's the last time you had an egg? He says, oh, we don't eat eggs. They're so expensive. And she prepared spam for us, one can of spam, one little tiny can of spam for four of us. And he said, oh, we have the good stuff tonight. They were so poor. And she, it was this tiny little house, but she had to get up and turn her back. And every time she would get up and turn her back, we would take our, there was another fellow with me, and we were on this mission trip, and we would cut the spam quietly, and we would place another piece on his plate. He was blind. He couldn't see. And once when she had her back turned I took out all the money I had in my wallet, and this fellow that was with me, he had about $40 in his wallet, and we just tucked it under the plate. $15 was their monthly income, and we probably left between the two of us maybe almost $100. Because you love graciously when you see one offer hospitality to give everything to you. And they were so gracious to us. They offered, when we said, oh, we love the tablecloth. She says, I made it. It's yours. I'll, I'll give it to you. No, we can't take that. To love graciously. I've been humbled by someone who loves that way. And because of that, when we have a choir come, when we have special people come in and you can open your home, I'm always amazed at people who say, well, we just don't let people come into our house. I feel so sorry for you. My father was a pastor and growing up, I sat there and listened to, to men from Dallas Theological Seminary, and I sat in my father's house and listened to people from Biola and Talbot, and I sat in my father's house and, and saw heads of missions and missionaries that stayed with us, and, and we would get kicked out of our rooms. There were six children, and there weren't enough bedrooms to go around as it was. There were three of us in one room, and, and it was always our bedroom that they would kick us out of, and we would go stay in the basement for up to a week while this missionary used your huge bedroom. Just one guy. Come on. We all could have been in there. I learned so much because my father loved graciously. My mother loved graciously. And the last one is to love humbly. Administering grace in various multicolored forms. We looked at various before, the, the whole concept of polka dot, but not just one size polka dot. Various colors, various hues, various sizes. It, it's in so many ways. Administering grace in so many different ways we can't even begin to describe it. Everyone is different. God uses these differences to his glory. Do you understand that? All of us are different, and God says, I've given you different ways to use that, that grace and to, to love and to serve. And sometimes I have people come to me and they say, Pastor, I don't have a gift. I don't have a talent. There's nothing that I can do for the Lord. I ran across this on YouTube. I, I love this. It's called Luray Caverns in Virginia. Anybody here ever heard of Luray Caverns? It's uh, 64 acres of cavern, 64 acres of cavern underground in Virginia. And a man in 1956 
Saul, that when he came up, he rapped against one, of, one, against one of the stalactites, and when he did it, it had this resonance, and he recognized it as a C on the scale. And he took a rubber mallet, and he began tapping on different stalactites, and he realized that there were different notes, and there was an A and a B and a C, and there was different, the real long ones would make really low sounds, and the real short ones would make higher sounds, and he began to identify them. In 1956, 57, and 58, for two years, he would come, can you imagine this weird guy coming with a rubber mallet, hitting all the stalactites in these caverns every time he goes through? He finally figured it out, and he put this, these uh, solenoid-activated rubber mallets, and he hooked it up to an organ console. They call it the Great Stalactite Pipe Organ, 37 stalactites that he's identified. You go to YouTube and just type in there the, the uh, Lou Ray Caverns, and you can probably see it, a Great Stalactite Organ. It is amazing. When it sounds, and by the way, these stalactites are over three and a half acres that, he, that he's identified, that he has the mallets on, but you can hear it all over all 64 acres of this caverns. And you say, Pastor, that's a fascinating story. What in the world has that got to do with me? If God can make music out of mineral deposits, what can he do with you? If God can make this gorgeous organ music out of mineral deposits, what can he do with you? He has given you a gift. He's given you a talent. He's given you something to do. And we, we have these slogans, greater things are still to be done. Greater things have yet to come. And we say, yeah, God's going to do greater things in them. And, these, and the Lord says, no, in you. That's not just words. That is a reality in your life today when you begin to love humbly and allow the Lord to do those things. Peter says it's his words when we speak. It's his strength when we serve. It's even his glory when we suffer. Do you not understand? It's Christ living in us. But we, we must be willing. Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 through 28, look at what it says. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you understand why Peter wrote like this? Do you understand what happened? Peter is there. And if you went with us to, to Israel, man, we had a, an awesome time. We went into the upper room. It was crowded that particular day. I've been there when it was just a, the small group, and that's even neater. But you come into this, this upper room, and you realize that that's where Jesus was with the disciples, and you realize that it was a lot bigger than you think and, and more elaborate, beautiful room. And you come in there, and you realize that, that there must have been a place right by the entrance, the door, where there would have been a basin of water. And scholars don't know for sure. But when you look at you know that where Jesus was seated, and you know that John had to be there because it says he was leaning against him. I love it. Don't you love it when you have a leaner? You get on the airplane, and you have a leaner. You know, you get in the airplane, and all of a sudden, you, you, you don't know anything about that with anybody leaning over there. But you have somebody leaning against you. Don't you love that when they're into your, your space, and you're like, come on, don't sleep on me. Don't sleep on my shoulder. John was a leaner. And it says that Jesus... He took and he, and he broke bread and he, and he shared the food with Judas. So he's that close. And by Peter's reaction, most scholars believe that Peter's the one who came in and is the youngest, it appears, or one of the younger ones. John probably was the very youngest. 
But as one of the younger ones, and as the way that they're seated, it appears that Peter's the one who should have washed the feet. They're not sure. But of all the people, Jesus saves him, and he gets to Peter. And when he comes to Peter, Peter says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Once again, Peter is saying, no, 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 Lord, this is not going to happen. You're the master. You're, you're the son of God. You are God incarnate. What are you doing? Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Peter, he says, Peter, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you have no part with me. I'm trying to, I'm trying to give an illustration here, Peter. Don't mess up my illustration. And then Peter says, Lord, then just wash all of me. He says, oh, Peter, you don't get it. This is all about service. This is not about salvation. This is about service. And as Peter's writing these words in in 1 Peter, and he talks about serving, if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. I think as he's writing these words, he must flash back to that. Two illustrations, I think, uh, that really help out with this. Armando Valadares. Armando Valadares is a Cuban refugee. He actually escaped from a prison in Cuba and was, uh, was able to get on a boat and came to the U.S., came in incognito, came in under the, under, under the radar and finally claimed political asylum. He was in prison for 22 years. Armando uh, Valadares was not a Christian. But he was a man who, who opposed Fidel Castro. And for 22 years, he paid for that dearly. And he said there was, a, there was a weird thing that happened because the prison guards didn't like bringing the food. The food was so nasty and so horrible, the guards didn't want to touch the food that was going to the prisoners. It makes you really hungry for the food. If The guards wouldn't even touch it. So they would take the prisoner that was on the best behavior and they would bring this prisoner around and they would bring the food to each of the, of the places and they would have the cart and they would put it in there. And Armando said, all of a sudden, after this had been going on some time, this one fellow, Pedro, was all that he knew his name. Pedro would come in, and he would, and he would set the tray down, and he would say this phrase, long live King Jesus. He would just whisper it in Spanish, long live King Jesus. And every time he would put the tray down, he would say that. And after a period of time, some of the men began to repeat back to him, long live King Jesus. And finally, one of the guards figured out what it was. He says, you can't say that anymore. And he says, I'm a, I'm a child of the king. I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And he says, you can't say that. You'll be executed. And he says, long live King Jesus. And when he said that, echoed down the halls through that, that prison, long live King Jesus. And they took Pedro out that night and they executed him. They, they shot him. And as he was walking out into the yard, he was calling out, Long live King Jesus! And the next day when they brought somebody around as they put the food on the tray, person after person in the prison would say out loud, Long live King Jesus! And the guard says, You can't do that. We'll have to execute you too. And the next night they took out 12. And the next night they took out 18. And the next night they took out 30. And every time they took them out, more and more people said it. And they began to gag them because as they would take them out of the prison, they would be yelling, long live King Jesus! And Armando said that they'd killed off so many of the other people. He says, I ended up being the best behaved and I got to give the food. He said, the first day I had to make a decision. I was not a believer in Jesus Christ until that moment. And he handed me the tray and he says, put it in there and I don't want to hear a word. He says, Armando says, I turned to look at him and I put it on the the edge and I said, long live King Jesus. 
So the guard thought that he had killed him. He hit him so hard. His head hit the back. They didn't even take him to the execution range, the firing range. They just threw him out. And that's how he escaped from prison because he was just unconscious. And when he came to, he was able to get to some family members who helped him get to the United States. And today Armando talks about long live King Jesus. And he said it was a servant of Jesus Christ, a man who served us, who led me to Jesus. The other illustration is this. I, I read an article some time ago. It was, a, it was an article that I found that a man had written about his father. It talks about his father who was a pastor. And I just want to read one little paragraph again. It says, an elderly member of the congregation had called. He was in his 70s, nearly used up, all bones and blotchy skin. He'd been married for half a century, for, fi- for 50 years. His wife was now ill and bedfast, and he cared for her in a hospital bed set up in the front room of their little shotgun house. Putting her in a nursing home was unthinkable to this man. As we got there, he opened the door and led us to his wife's side. The room was dimly lit by a single 40-watt bulb and a little lamp near her bed. The sour odors of age and sickness and pine saw caused me to catch my breath. She'd been having bad dreams and in a fitful moment had fallen out of her bed. She was uninjured, but her husband did not have the strength to help her to get back into bed. So groaning under her weight, we wrestled her back into bed. There was a simple thank you. I've never forgotten the look of gratitude in that old man's face as he showed us to the door. Nearly two millennia earlier, the table was set for the Seder, the Passover meal, when Jesus When suddenly Jesus did the unthinkable, he removed his outer garment, wrapped a towel around himself, poured water into a bowl, and knelt to wash his disciples' feet. None of the disciples would volunteer for such a task. Peter did not intend to wash anybody's feet. And he recoiled as Jesus knelt to wash his disciples. The disciples stared in silence as Jesus stated, I've set an example that you should do as I've done for you. I remember that old man, his life lying lying helpless on the floor in the middle of the night. He didn't need an appointment. He needed a servant. He didn't need a pastor in two weeks. He needed one then. The writer says, my father retired this spring. During the reception, people told me that my father's ministry had touched their lives. It was interesting that nobody mentioned his preaching, though he was a capable expositor. Yet many people mentioned loving acts of service. My brother Ralph wrote that about my father. It wasn't just his verse. It was his life to serve. Shall we pray? What an awesome God you are, Father. You saved us by grace. You've given us everything. You've done all that we could imagine and more by going to the cross. And somehow we've muddied it all up. Somehow, Father, we have, somehow, Father, we've missed it. That you want us to love you, to love others. That you want us to come into a relationship with you and because of that relationship with you, be changed not only in our attitude but the way we live. And as we do that, Father, it will transform us. It will mature us to love deeply, to love graciously, to love humbly. 
We know, Father, it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. It's a step-by-step process. So help us to take the first step today. If there's anyone here today, Father, that does not know you, does not have a relationship with you, has never gone to the cross and said, I believe and I accept what Jesus did for me. Father, help them to do that today. And if there's anyone here, Father, that, that maybe has done that, but they, they still have never chosen to serve, may today be the day. Not for a new life verse, but for a new lifestyle, a new attitude, a new love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.